You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. Justice, Moral Judgment, and the Danger of Psychologizing by Ankar Gatte. Thank you and welcome. Thanks for coming this morning. I don't want to psychologize, but... I don't know in how many conversations I've been with objectivists where this is said, I don't want to psychologize, but... And then the conversation turns to talking about someone's motivations, emotional attitudes, mental processing, or some other aspect of their psychological functioning. I don't want to psychologize, but... And why don't they want to psychologize? Well, Ayn Rand wrote an article called The Psychology of Psychologizing, in which she condemns the practice. You should not engage in psychologizing. It's a vice, it's a sin, it's something you shouldn't do. And so I think when this kind of attitude, I don't want to psychologize, but amounts to, well, I don't want to do it, but it's a sin I can't avoid. What are you going to do? You've got to live. And that's a lot of people's attitude towards sin um, if you're coming from a religious mindset. I don't want to do it, but I can't avoid it. And why can't we avoid it? Why does it feel like a sin we can't avoid? I think it comes down to the way that we think about psychologizing, what we kind of retain from that article, if you've read that article. So why can't we avoid it? I think in many people's minds, the way it stands, what is psychologizing? I think one common, often implicit answer is to psychologize is to think or talk about someone else's psychology. That's what you're not supposed to do, but it seems hard to avoid. And so it's a sin that you can't avoid. And let me give you two pieces of evidence to kind of relate it, but two pieces of evidence that this is a common answer to the question, in effect, of what is psychologizing, that this is, it's a sin or a vice that we're not supposed to commit, we're not supposed to engage in. And what is that sin or vice? As I'm putting it, the way to think about it, it well, it's to think about or talk about someone else's psychology or aspects of their psychological functioning. Here's two pieces of evidence. The first is when, as I said at the outset, it's often in conversation with objectivists. I don't want to psychologize, but... And I often point out um, that Ayn Rand's article is called The Psychology of Psychologizing. <clears throat> And people get uncomfortable often. You can see it's, huh. Is she committing the very sin or vice she's telling us not to engage in? It's the psychology of psychologizing. And then I think often the kind of processing is, well, maybe she's an exception. Maybe the rules don't apply to her. They apply to us as lesser mortals, but they don't apply to her. And in the end, I don't think that's a crazy view. Yeah, I don't think it's right either. But I don't think it's a crazy view. But if you hold it like this, that it, and it, 
yeah, but what is she doing in the article then? She's talking about psychology, and she's talking about other people's psychology. If psychologizing consists in, well, that's taboo, then um, what, like, what is she doing in the article? And here's the second piece, they're related. But, um, so I've written a couple of articles that are very critical of Donald Trump. And in the second one, the basic argument was that Trump fits the profile of an anti-conceptual mentality that Ayn Rand writes about. And so this is from the table of contents from the Ayn Rand letter, and the subheads here are the subheads in the, in the table of contents. So there's a two-part article and a companion piece, The Missing Link and Selfishness Without a Self. These are both reprinted in Philosophy Who Needs It, that book. And the, as you see from the subhead, it's the anti-conceptual mentality of tribalism. And then the next one is the non-conforming tribalist. And I was arguing that he, Trump fits the profile of an anti-conceptual mentality. And I got a lot of feedback on the article, as you can imagine. Some of it positive, a lot of it negative. And the negative comments split up into two kinds. The first was, no, Trump doesn't fit the anti-conceptual mentality. If you look at the full evidence, no, he's really a thinker. Sometimes it was like he's playing 3D chess and you just don't understand it and so on. And that, as a form of argument, I don't agree with the, the, the specifics. I don't think it's a sound argument. But as a form of argument, that's a valid argument. Like, you're arguing that he fits this profile, and I'm counter-arguing, no, he doesn't. And here's reasons to think that he doesn't. So I look at his foreign policy and da-da-da. That's a, a real argument. But the second kind of feedback I got, and it was the much more dominant feedback, was... What are you doing arguing that he's an anti-conceptual mentality? That's psychologizing. <clears throat> and Ayn Rand has told us that psychologizing is a sin. What is someone at the Ayn Rand Institute doing psychologizing? Haven't you read Ayn Rand's article? And that again, like I got a lot of things, a lot of feedback like that. And that that means that I think a lot of objectivists are holding it as what psychologizing consists in is talking about discussing someone else's psychology or aspects of their psychological functioning. That's taboo. You shouldn't be doing that. That's a sin. There's something irrational about it. And um, so an argument of this form, there's something wrong with it. But if you think about that viewpoint, one of the kind of obvious questions that you would ask yourself, I think, is why is Ayn Rand writing this article? It's an article about the anti-conceptual mentality. It starts off where she gives four examples of people that she's encountered or even just read about and asks, like, what's the common denominator here? And her answer is, well, there's an anti-conceptual mentality at work, and then there's a lengthy analysis of what that means, of what that looks like, and of how that plays out. If the purpose of the article is not to help us as readers understand, identify, spot an anti-conceptual mentality, and to think a little bit of, well, how do you deal with such a mentality? Because this is what you're facing, and this is how it thinks about the world, and this is how it faces the world, and so you have to think, how do you deal with this? If that's not the point of the article, or the set of articles, what's the point of them? What's the point of telling us, well, there's an anti-conceptual mentality, but don't you dare ever identify one? 
<clears throat> and yet, if you think that that's what psychologizing consists in, you're pushed in that direction, that it knows whether there's something wrong or something taboo about this. <clears throat> um, so the, the way to put it, the, the way I think, another way of putting it, what's being held, and you can get some of this from the article. So I don't think this viewpoint, it's not a, um, I think it's wrong, and I'm going to argue that it's wrong, but it's not unfounded in what's being said in the article. But one, so one way you can hold it, it's, well, when you're looking at other people, it's legitimate to think about, assess, evaluate what they say and what they do. And Ayn Rand really emphasizes that from a certain perspective, what they say and what they do. But the second part is it's illegitimate to think about someone's psychology. You focus on what they say, what they do. You don't engage in thinking about discussing, trying to analyze at all their psychological functioning or some aspects of it. And I don't think this is what is being argued by Ayn Rand. There's something wrong with it. And one way to put it, it's too much behaviorism. It's too much, well, you can perceive other people's actions. You can hear what they say. It's at the level that it's literally perceivable. Um, but if you start thinking about or trying to analyze uh, what is going on in their minds, that's the ineffable, the mysterious, the inaccessible. It's beyond reason and rational scrutiny. I mean, in the end, the behaviorist, is, there's really nothing there to be uh, got at. So it's, it's, um, it would be crazy even to speculate about it, because in the end, there's nothing there. But there, it's too much a behavioristic kind of perspective. And so I think for any time you hear, I don't want to psychologize, but what's happening is the person knows from, from having read Ayn Rand or heard, uh, having read the article or heard about the article that it's, well, there's a sin here, there's a taboo I'm not supposed to um, uh, <clears throat> violate. But I've got to do something like this, and so I'm walking through, there's some kind of landmines here that I'm not supposed to walk on, but I have no idea really what they are. No ability to spot them. And this is not a good predicament to be in, obviously. <clears throat> so my agenda for today, there's basically two points that I want to talk about. One is, what is psychologizing? So what is the actual sin or vice that Rand is warning us against? And then the second is to emphasize the, something that I think about in, in regard to objectivism, is that it, in fact, encourages us to think about psychological aspects, both of ourselves, and we've had a number of talks already, Tara Smith's talk, uh, Don's talk, that are talking about some of the psychological aspects of thinking about one's self and one's own functioning, and, uh, that, and, and that of other people. I don't think one can get the way that Ayn Rand looks at the world and the way that she analyzes the world and the way she evaluates it without getting that this is a real emphasis in her approach to philosophy. So, if, so part of the reason for talking about this, the more one thinks, well, I don't want to psychologize, but it's a sin, I shouldn't do it, or at least I should do it as seldom as I possibly manage, uh, can manage to do, that you're depriving yourself of some of the real value that philosophy brings and part of the way in which it illuminates the world, including issues about judgment and moral judgment. 
So what is psychologizing? And I want to start with, um, and I'm going to do uh, a quote a few things from the article, partly because I'm not assuming that you're, it's fresh in anybody's mind. But second, I want to see, put it in her very words. I'm going to paraphrase a few things, but some things I want to put that it's directly in, from the article. And certainly the first thing to start with is her characterization of what psychologizing is. And this is the way it's put in the article. So we're starting with the point one. Psychologizing consists in condemning or excusing specific individuals on the grounds of their psychological problems, real or invented, in the absence of or contrary to factual evidence. And let me emphasize one point of this. It's in the absence of or contrary to factual evidence. It doesn't, it's not a blanket prohibition on any focus like this. It's when you're excusing or condemning people <clears throat> and it's detached from evidence. This is what she's emphasizing. And she gives a, 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 early in the article a comparison to moralizing and rationalizing, that psycho, psychologizing fits into those two things. They're all similar. And this, you can think of it like this. And Tara Smith, in her uh, lecture yesterday, talked a little bit about the process of ration, rationalizing. And these are two kind of adapted dictionary definitions about rationalizing and moralizing. So to rationalize is attempt to an attempt to justify your conduct, actions, ideas, by providing reasons that obscure one's actual goals. So it's a pretense of being concerned with reason. You're doing something for a certain goal, and then you invent an explanation that makes it seem, okay, yeah, that's legitimate of what you're doing, and that makes sense, and so on. But it's not actually. I mean, so it's usually to obscure one's actual goals because you don't want to face or you don't want to bring into the sunshine what the actual goal is. So, for instance, most of the arguments for the existence of God are rationalizations. The person holds on to God for, because it's an emotional commitment, it's a province of faith, and then he doesn't want to be seen as, well, yeah, like I couldn't care less about reason. No, I believe in God because I've got these arguments. And it, uh, Robert Mayhew will be talking about the ontological argument later in the week. But that's not the reason why the person actually uh, believes in God. It's rationalization, and it, what it is, it's a pretense of being concerned with reason being concerned with going by reason. And moralizing is similar. It's, so from one adapted dictionary definition, to express opinions about matters of right and wrong, especially in a self-righteous way. And it's, again, it's a pretense of an actual concern with good and evil, of figuring out what's right and wrong. It usually consists of condemning other people and like, look how good I am, I'm a saint, and so on, and look at you sinners, how bad you are. A lot of priests do this kind of thing. Social media is replete with moralizing. And it's, again, it's a pretense of being concerned with right and wrong. And the way she puts it in the article, the bottom is a quote from the article, so for rationalizing, moralizing, and psychologizing, they're all, she puts it, the common denominator is the corruption of a cognitive process to serve an ulterior motive. But it's the corruption of the process. It's not just as rash to say rationalizing is a sin. 
is not to say, well, to go by reason is a sin or a vice, that's problematic. And to engage in moralizing is not to say, well, moral judgment is problematic and trying to distinguish between right and wrong, there's something problematic about that. And similarly in regard to psychologizing, it's the corruption of a cognitive process. But that leads open that there's a legitimate ways or evidence-based ways to think about what um, uh, a person's psychological functioning, or at least aspects of a person's psychological functioning. So uh, a way to summarize this is psychologizing is not thinking about someone's psychology. Psychologizing is speculating arbitrarily about someone's psychology in order to morally excuse or condemn, and that's the kind of the ulterior motive that is at work. But it's speculating arbitrarily. Like if you want to hold it in two words, that's how I would think, or speculating arbitrarily about someone's psychology. But the key thing, I think, is it's arbitrary. It's detached from facts, evidence, reality. And that is what she is condemning. And it, she puts it under a pretty damning heading. She puts it This is a new form of mysticism. And this is how she puts it in the article. Since the psychologizer is dealing with the great unknowable, that's a scare quotes, which used to be life after death or extrasensory perception, but is now man's subconscious, all rules of evidence, logic, and proof are suspended, and anything goes. And then she puts in brackets, which is what attracts him to his racket. But here again, you can see that it, the emphasis is very much on, it's arbitrary. It throws out evidence, logic, and what it wants is anything goes. And that's the sense in which it's arbitrarily speculating about somebody's uh, psychological functioning. And for a certain reason, to condemn or to excuse, but that means to arbitrarily condemn or arbitrarily excuse. And let me give some examples of this. I'll start with a couple that come up in the article, and then I'll give you some examples uh, outside of this, of what I think it is, the practice or the phenomenon that she's condemning. So here's two. These are examples of arbitrarily excusing someone, and these are both quotes from the article. And I'm sure this first one you've encountered in some form often in newspapers, the media, or you're talking to someone um, <clears throat> about... about political, cultural issues. The notion that poverty is the psychological root of all evil is a typical piece of psychologizing. And this is the idea that, I mean, despite all your evidence about what the person thinks, says, does now, and so on, the real driver of his action is something in his subconscious as a result of the fact that he grew up in a poor neighborhood or a poor family. That's the real explanation of his behavior, and he couldn't help it, which is often what um, accompanies this kind of thing. Uh, that she regards as, that, like, that's arbitrarily speculating about the content of the person's subconscious, how it's driving them, and ignoring all the evidence that you have of what he says and what he does and so on, and, and give this kind of explanation to excuse his behavior. But the problem is it's an arbitrary explanation. It's an arbitrary excusing. Here's a second example. The playwright who was asked in a television interview why his plays always had unhappy endings, and who answered, I don't know, ask my psychiatrist. 
That's again, it's, it's excusing, trying to absolve himself of responsibility. I have no idea why I write the stories that I write or why they have the endings that they have. I'm not in control of that. It's a, that's something in my subconscious. Who knows what it is? And go talk to my psychiatrist. He might be able to tell you. So that's to absolve himself of responsibility. And I think part of the reason Ayn Rand was writing this article um, about now what, a decade ago, Yaron Brook and I did some um, talks at, at an Ocon where we were looking at the some of the cultural trends in America since the 70s. And in part of doing some research for that, I read a number of books on the 70s, but also tried to immerse myself a little bit in the popular culture, watch some news stories, documentaries, talk shows, including late night talk shows so, of kind of celebrity guests and things like that. And it stood out the number of times people would answer um, to the effect of, I don't know, ask my shrink. <clears throat> and that, like, that's a, I mean, that's the kind of phenomenon I think she was responding to, and that it was, a, it was a widespread cultural phenomenon. And this is what she's saying, like, this, this, there is a taboo on this. This is wrong, and you shouldn't engage in this. Now take from the other side, examples of arbitrarily condemning someone. If you like Plato, or you don't like Mickey Spillane, there's got to be an anti-life premise somewhere lurking in your subconscious. Now, for those who've been around the objectivist movement for a long time, know that this was part of the atmosphere in the 80s. It's part of why I think um, Leonard Peikoff gave his lecture course, Understanding Objectivism, which has been, I mean, you can get it in book form now that Mike Berliner has edited. He has examples like this, and I think real examples of what were circulating in the objectivist movement or world at the time about it's trying to, there's, now there can be not good reasons for liking Plato, though I think there can be good reasons for it. There can be reasons, good reasons, for why someone doesn't like Mickey Spillane. I know people who don't like reading Mickey Spillane. <clears throat> but you can't ferret out of their subconscious something on the basis of this. This is arbitrarily speculating about the nature of the subconscious and what's driving them and so on. And here it's to condemn, not to excuse. There's got to be something really wrong with you. <clears throat> Ayn Rand is anti-communist because she witnessed her father's pharmacy nationalized by the Soviets. I don't know how many interviews I've been in where we're talking about Ayn Rand and either the interviewer or another guest in the interview show says this, that the reason Ayn Rand's anti-communist and why she's so fervently anti-communist, they would put it much more like she's rabidly anti-communist, is she was traumatized in her youth by seeing her father's business seized. Now, it's true she saw her father's business seized, so in that sense, like, it's not completely devoid of fact, but it's arbitrary to say, like, there's, oh yeah, it's, the result is the trauma. She's given us ample evidence of why, an argument for why she's anti-communist and more broadly anti-statist and anti-collectivist. She's given us that arguments and evidence in We the Living, in Anthem, in a number of her nonfiction essays. Here's the arguments, here's the evidence. And one small piece of evidence would be, look, what the Soviets did to Ayn Rand's family 
and to a whole bunch of other families in Soviet Russia. I mean, that's part of what We the Living is about. <clears throat> that's the evidence. And the person wants to bypass it. He wants to just shunt it aside. Yeah, no, but that's not the real reason Ayn Rand is anti-communist. And part of the reason to do this is they don't have to engage with the arguments then. You don't have to engage. Well, like this is why she's anti-communist. This is why she says communism is evil. And more broadly, this is why she's anti-collectivist. You don't have to do, deal with any of that because the real reason is she was traumatized and what she needs is like some psychological help. That's what would be the, and that is, again, it's arbitrarily condemning her. It's like it's really for an irrational or non-rational reason that she holds this viewpoint and so on. And, but it's arbitrary and there's no evidence for this. Um, and the person certainly has no evidence for that. So this is psychologizing to arbitrarily condemn. Take a third, last example. The Islamophobia smear that is all around today, that's a modern piece of psychologizing. <clears throat> and again, it's similar to what, the, the, what goes on in uh, thinking of Ayn Rand as anti-communist. No matter what arguments and evidence somebody gives for why they're concerned about Islam as it exists today in the Middle East, the way the doctrine is held, how many followers it has, how it inspires fanaticism, that you have whole countries dedicated to this as a crusading ideology that is seeking political expressions um, in Iran, in Saudi Arabia, so, and so on. You can give all that evidence. And, no, the real reason you're against Islam is you've got a phobia. It's like you've got this irrational fear of spiders and that's how you're responding to Islam. And that's the, and like, how are you gonna deal with that? I don't have to deal with that by giving counter arguments and so on. It's, no, you've got a kind of psychological problem and you should go see a psychiatrist or a psychologist. But it's a way, so it's a way of arbitrarily condemning again, like a, this, I mean, Sam Harris was subject to this smear all the time. It's a way of condemning, of saying, well, no, what's, what you're really doing is irrational or non-rational. Um, this is what's really driving you, and so I don't have to deal with the arguments and so on that you're advancing. So it's a way of, of um, uh, as I put it before, arbitrarily speculating on the content of a person's psychology, subconscious, and how it's driving the person. But the whole thing is, it's arbitrary. And so it, I mean, I think it's right the way she thinks about it. It is a new form of mysticism. And I don't think we should go around saying, well, I don't want to engage in mysticism, but there should be no but. And the same is in regard to psychologizing. If one holds it as what I think the phenomenon really is and what it is that she's talking about and what it is she's warning us about, the, it is a form of mysticism, and it, you should never engage in it. And it's possible never to engage in it. You shouldn't feel yourself in a predicament kind of, I don't want to psychologize, but, um, if I put it in different terms, like, I don't want to engage in arbitrary speculation, but I see, seem compelled to. No, you should never feel compelled to do that. And the positive in the article of what she's emphasizing is that you judge people qua rational conscious beings. So part of the kind of the wider mysticism of the psychologizing is it's a form of determinism. 
Um, it's you're, like you're determined by your subconscious and you often don't even know what its content is, but I on the outside can know what its content is. And this is really what's driving you. This is really why you're against Islam. Or this is really why you're against communism. <clears throat> and what she's emphasizing is, no, a person is in control of their mind, of their consciousness. That's what you focus on. And you have to think about what is appropriate evidence. And one way that she puts it, in the article, emphasizing the issue of evidence. An individual's consciousness, as such, is inaccessible to others. It can be perceived only by means of its outward manifestations. It is only when mental processes reach some form of expression in action that they become perceivable by inference and can be judged. And this is part of where you get, the, so you focus on what a person says and what they do. But notice what she's emphasizing here. It's mental processes reach a form of expression and they can be observed by an outsider. They're perceivable and can be judged. It's not like you're just judging the actions, what they say and what they do. You're judging in part the mental processing, but you're judging it on the basis of what they say and what they do. But it's not the kind of behavioristic perspective that all you can judge is the actions and who knows what's going on in the mind and you're not to think about that and you're not to try to analyze that at all. That's not the perspective that she's giving. <clears throat> but she's emphasizing what to focus on in regard to evidence. And so the way she puts it then a bit later in the article is morality is the province of philosophical judgment, not of psychological diagnosis. A man's moral character must be judged on the basis of his actions, his statements, and his conscious convictions. A man is not to be condemned or excused on the grounds of the state of his subconscious. But notice here too, the focus is a man's moral character must be judged on the basis of his actions, his statements, and his conscious convictions. And character involves a person's subconscious, subconscious content and subconscious functioning. When we talk about character, we're talking about what's characteristic of a person. And that means what has, through actions, he has made habitual, he has made second nature, to use an Aristotelian term, to his functioning, to, do, to put it in more objectivist language, of what he's automatized in his functioning. That's when you're thinking, you're thinking it's characteristic, it's a characteristic way of functioning because it's embedded in the person. But part of what that means is that it's embedded. It's, it's part of his subconscious. It's part of the second nature that he's made for himself. And so you get this important elaboration in the article. In dealing with people, one necessarily draws conclusions about their characters, which involves their psychology since every character judgment refers to a man's consciousness. And I'm emphasizing the necessarily, it's not emphasized in the article. But one necessarily draws conclusions about their characters, which involves their psychology. So I, I think you just can't interpret this article as saying, well, there's a taboo to think about someone's psychology. And I think she's going out of her way to try to, don't interpret what I'm saying in this way. You necessarily, draw conclusions about a person's character. But the question is, on what basis are you doing that? And the primary evidence is what they say and what they do. 
And then she gives this, also this comparison that's very helpful in the article in the way that I think she thinks, like what's legitimate to think about in terms of another person's psychological functioning, their character, which involves their subconscious. And what is it? Like you're, it does, you, philosophy doesn't turn you into a psychologist. <clears throat> and she gives this comparison to medicine. A layman needs some knowledge of medicine in order to know how to take care of his own body and when to call a doctor. The same principle applies to psychology. A layman needs some knowledge of psychology in order to understand the nature of a human consciousness. <clears throat> and some understanding of the nature of a human consciousness includes that it has a conscious and subconscious aspect and that these interact and that you have to think a lot about that interaction, both for thinking about your self and functioning, but also about thinking about other people and their functioning and your evaluations of that. And so I think the basic guidance from the article is psychologizing is a new form of mysticism. Don't do it. There's no but. I don't want to psychologize but. There should, if you understand the phenomenon of what she's drawing attention to and why she's damning it as a new form of mysticism, there should be no temptation to, yeah, but I find myself that I've got to do this sometimes. <clears throat> But on the other hand, you can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Philosophy necessarily, and again, I want to emphasize the necessarily, includes some focus on the interaction of the conscious and subconscious minds. Okay, so that's the point one. <clears throat> Let's turn to the second point, that objectivism, I think, is encouraging, like seriously encouraging one, to think about aspects of psychological functioning, and that you lose part of the value, and I, and I think of it as a significant value of philosophy, if this is not part of your thinking. <clears throat> and let me highlight three areas in regard to this. So free will and moral judgment, and the more broadly, kind of a broader perspective on philosophy, philosophical ideas, and the way I think that Ayn Rand thinks about them, and then something about individual application. But if you think of what objective is, if we start with the issue of free will, which is very connected to what I was just discussing, um, objectivism's view of free will is that you can take conscious control, conscious direction, conscious management and supervision over your mind. You can exert a fundamental level of control. That's what it means to be in full focus. But a fundamental control over what? over the functioning and direction of your mind, which involves a whole bunch of subconscious elements. Whether it's you're thinking about some problem, you're thinking about what to do, should I renew this mortgage, and so on. There's an element, if you're doing that in focus, you're exerting real conscious control over that. But part of that control is then what comes up from your subconscious. It's a complex interaction between the conscious mind and the subconscious mind. If there were some kind of perspective that, yeah, well, it's fine to think about the conscious elements, but you shouldn't be thinking about the subconscious elements. I don't think you can even understand what the view of free will is and what it, I mean, one of the metaphors, I have a talk where it's focused on that metaphor of seizing the reins of your mind. That's seizing control, management, direction, but that includes a whole bunch of elements that are automatized, that are subconscious in your functioning. And the whole way that Ayn Rand describes when a person's not in full focus, when they're in partial focus or drift, it's they're focusing more subconsciously 
then consciously. They're focusing more by, uh, sorry, they're functioning more by their automatized um, content, skills, behavior, and so on, of what they've made habitual, and non-exerting management over that. They're functioning in a more emotional way. But part of what she, emo uh, she emphasizes it about emotions is their subconscious phenomenon. You have to understand them as that, you have to think about that, and so on. And what's true of one's own functioning, I mean, it's a theory of free will. It's first and primarily about understanding your own mind and the fact that you can exert control and management over it. But that's true of other people as well. And so you have to think about that in regard to thinking about other people and how they're functioning. And that, that's crucial in regard to moral judgment, that that's part of what you're doing when you're thinking about the functioning of other people. And take as just one, I say, I'm just highlighting things here. One example of this in the objectivist view of morality and as, as it pertains to moral judgment. So the crucial distinction that is made between errors of knowledge and breaches of morality. To really think about that distinction and its nature and its importance, you have to be thinking about conscious and subconscious elements. The control someone's exerting or not exerting and how they would function if they exert control or full control, and how they would function if they don't exert full control. You have to be thinking about, like, this is part of their subconscious, this is part of the content they have, this is part of their skills and ability. And if they're not exerting full control, you'll see real behavior. It's not like a person falls asleep if they're in partial focus or drift, but they're not managing or fully managing, but they're still functioning, but they're functioning more in a subconscious way. And you have to think about, yeah, that's what I would observe if the person were not in full focus. <clears throat> or, or, on the other hand, this is what I would observe if they were in full focus. And so errors of knowledge, it's a perspective of, I view the person or I view myself, because in the end, the moral judgment is both about oneself and about other people. I view myself as I'm really trying to know. I'm exerting a full effort to know. The motive that's driving me is I want to identify reality, but I've made some kind of mistake. Um, I've made an error, either my, I was ignorant of some crucial fact that turns out that a lot hinges on that, and yeah, the conclusion I reached about what, what next project we should take at work, it was the wrong conclusion because there was something about the market that I didn't understand uh, and I was ignorant of, but I was really trying to figure out what to do and what to know. It's an error of knowledge. It's not a breach of morality. A breach of morality is, yeah, I wasn't fully trying to know, or the other person wasn't fully trying to know. They weren't exerting a full effort. They weren't doing their best, and this is the result. And the result's not just, well, they were ignorant or made a mistake of logic or so. It's they weren't trying fully to know. And to think, so to think about that, either in regard to oneself or regard to other people, you have to have a perspective on well, this is what would have been possible to the person if they had been in full focus. And to think about that, you have to think about subconscious content and abilities and processing. Let me give you an example of this. I give this often in talking about free will. It's an example that stood out in my mind from a philosophy of law class. The whole issue of negligence pertains a lot to, um, a, to have a proper perspective on negligence. It comes from a proper perspective on free will. And the example from the, the 
law was something, I might get the de the, all the details not exactly right, but the example was there were uh, two construction workers working on the top of a building. I think they were bricklayers. They were demolishing an old um, uh, brick wall that was like, beyond repair, taking it apart and then putting up a new brick wall. And the old bricks, they were tossing off the roof. <clears throat> um, and they didn't cordon off below that, like an area where they're tossing it, and they didn't put up signs, look, day, work overhead, danger, or anything. They're just tossing it over the wall. And it wasn't like on a weekend when nobody's there. And, so, and there was a passerby who one of the bricks hit, and I forget if it, oh, make that, make, to make it less gruesome, they were just injured, not killed. And the question is, are they liable? And from one perspective, is it like, we weren't trying to injure anybody, which was, I think was true. Like, we weren't trying to hurt anybody. You can't hold us to blame for this. This isn't what we were trying to do. And yet, from the perspective of the law, there's a perspective of, yeah, but you're still responsible for this, and you're morally culpable for this. And why is that? Well, there's a perspective that the person didn't exert full focus in regard to this. But then you have to think, if they didn't, so you have to think both, if they did, would it have been possible for them to just have been tossing bricks off the um, roof? And, I mean, maybe for a child of three or four, yeah, it wouldn't have occurred to them that, well, there might be people walking below and so on, and bricks from this height can do a lot of damage. And so they might, yeah, they might not have had that knowledge and had the ability to think like that and to project that far into the future. I mean, it's not that far, but to project a little bit into the future. And it, it, but that's a, then you're thinking about, like, if they exerted conscious control, they have the subconscious research content and knowledge and ability that this, like, this action would not have been possible to them. But if they relax control and they're only in partial focus and they're joking around and so on and tossing the bricks off and not thinking about, well, there might be people below, they're not thinking about it because they're not in full focus. But that means some of their subconscious knowledge and abilities are not being brought to bear in the present situation. And that's why you regard it as, no, this isn't just an error of knowledge. This is a breach of morality and they're morally culpable for this. Um, and that, like, to think about that, both, either about one's own functioning or someone else's functioning, you have to be thinking in that way. And if there were some kind of taboo about well, you can't think about this kind of subconscious functioning and its relevance and applicability to the situation. I don't think you could have this distinction of errors of knowledge versus breaches of morality. And the more you think about this distinction, that this is in part of what it's drawing on. It's coming from a view of free will and a view of free will that it's about the interaction of a conscious and subconscious aspects of the mind. The more you get, like, this is a complex thing to be thinking about. It's not, complex doesn't mean you can't figure it out, it's impossible, it's beyond reason. Or so. But it takes real thinking to think, yeah, why am I regarding this as an error of knowledge? Or why am I regarding this as a breach of morality? And the more you think about that, I think in a, in a fact-based way of what is going on when you're making this distinction, you'll realize, and particularly from a philosophical perspective, there's a crucial subcategory here of errors of knowledge versus breaches of morality that are, is complicated to think about. <clears throat> and that objectivism views morality as itself a body of knowledge. 
and a sophisticated body of knowledge. We're not born with it and you don't reach it at age five or age 10. It's, I mean, part of what philosophy is about is developing a moral code, which is a systematic integrated body of moral principles that we regard as knowledge, or that certainly objectivism as a philosophy regards as knowledge. <clears throat> and so it's, a person doesn't automatically have this knowledge, nor do they know automatically or infallibly how to apply this knowledge. And so there's, within morality, there's the distinction between is this an error of moral knowledge or is this a breach of the person's moral knowledge? And part of what makes this a little complicated to think about is from one perspective. So if someone thinks, that, oh no, justice, uh, uh, a value of mine, a friend is being attacked, just or a colleague at work, justice doesn't require that I speak up. Now that can be because either they don't fully understand what justice is or they're misapplying it to the situation. It actually does require them to speak up, but they don't understand that. And for that reason, they don't speak up. So you view that as, well, that's an error of moral knowledge. But from another perspective, it just looks like a breach of morality. Like morality requires them to speak up and they don't speak up. So that looks like, well, isn't that just a breach of morality? And, but the more you think about, well, morality is not about sentiments or feelings. So it's about knowledge. You have to be thinking about well, what is this person's moral knowledge? And is it that it is it the reason, is there reason to think, yeah, they just didn't understand the principle of justice fully, or they didn't understand its application in this case. And so they didn't speak up, but there was cause to speak up if you really understand what justice is. Or was it that no, the person is sort of shunting aside their knowledge of morality. They don't, they think, well, a colleague at work is being attacked, but if I stick my neck out, that might create problems for me. And maybe they rationalize it a little bit. And, so, and then you don't view it as, no, this isn't an error of moral knowledge. It's not that they just didn't fully understand the way the principle of justice applies. It's they're trying to get around their moral knowledge and that this is a breach of morality. Um, and this is when you think then about other people and then people who are non-objectivists and so on, you have to think about like, what is their moral knowledge versus all kinds of principles and views and morality that they have that are actually false, that don't represent knowledge? How does that sit in their mind? How do then they think about applying that? And so, to have a perspective of, well, do I think it's an error of knowledge or do I think it's a breach of morality? And the more I think you have this category that there's errors of moral knowledge and then breaches of moral knowledge, the more helpful it is in terms of thinking about that distinction than the way that it plays out. And this incidentally, I think, well, it's not that incidental, but this, the, um, this is a major feature of Ayn Rand's novels and the characterization in the novels and some of the conflicts in the novels. They're about thinking about errors of knowledge versus breaches of morality, but in particular, they're often about thinking about errors of moral knowledge versus breaches of moral knowledge. And that's in part because the novels, and really all the novels, We the Living less so than the others, but it's in We the Living as well, involve the discovery of new moral knowledge. Um, and, and so part of the contrast then is people holding things that don't actually represent moral knowledge, but for some of the characters, they think of it or semi-think of it as it is knowledge. I'll take one example of this, but you can ask in the question period, if we have time for a question period. Um, I'm gonna, I'll, we might go a little bit over, but I'll try to keep at least 15 minutes for questions. Um, if you think of equality in Anthem, 
This, in effect, is part of what he's grappling with. So the book starts off, it is a sin to write this. And he has a perspective on himself, like, should I view myself as I'm just breaching my moral knowledge? Like, what does it mean it's a sin to write this? If I know it's a sin, I shouldn't be doing this, it's wrong to do, why am I doing it? And isn't there something wrong with me, but like morally wrong with me, if I know this to be uh, something that is bad or evil, and yet I engage in it anyway? But on the other hand, he doesn't seem to think of it as um, a breach of moral knowledge. And that's part of what starts to, it occurs to him then, like, is this knowledge? So it's a sin to write this. Like, do I actually know this is a sin? I've been told it's a sin, but do I actually know that it's a sin? Why is it a sin? And why do I feel like this is the first time I feel alive and content and looking to the future and so on? When he's in his cave doing his, I was in the subway tunnel, doing his research and then writing in the journal, like what? And it's, and he's really struggling with this, of thinking of it as like, how am I to think about this? Am I just making errors? Am I going wrong in some kind of way? Or am I just defying my knowledge? Uh, and partly because like a lot of what he thinks of in some way is like, is this, this is knowledge. He's really starting to question, well, no, maybe it doesn't represent knowledge. And it's like, it, it's complex. I mean, the, the real um, conflict in the story, in the suspense is it's really this kind of internal focus that he's, trying to assess his own actions of what he's doing, of why he's doing it, how to look at it from a moral perspective. Um, and he's, gra- I mean, it's not put in these terms, but he's grappling with this of like, in what category does it belong? And it's complicated precisely because it involves not just like the bricklayers. It was, it, it's, they just, to say they breached their knowledge just means like you have knowledge that there might be people walking below and bricks do damage and so on, and you haven't activated that knowledge. But here the complexity is it involves moral knowledge and moral principles and how to think about that. But again, this, this whole distinction and this whole perspective, you can't really, I think, think about and appreciate if you're not thinking about it. It has this conscious and subconscious dimension. And part of the subconscious dimension, say in the case of equality, is there's some implicit moral knowledge. There's explicit moral knowledge and there's implicit. There's more consciously held and there's subconsciously formulated that he's trying to, in effect, conceptualize and bring to full conscious awareness and control. And that this is just, this is part of what is going on and part of what this, this distinction means and what it means to actually think about it in a realistic way. <clears throat> um, let me say a word now about the wider perspective, I think, that you get on philosophy from Ayn Rand and in a lot of her writing, both of the fiction and the nonfiction. And the way that I think about that is she's, what she's interested in and has a special focus on is how abstract ideas inhabit a mind, how they actually live and impact a mind. And that involves conscious and subconscious aspects. And it requires thinking about both of these. If you remember in philosophy, who needs it? So the lead essay. So this is Ayn Rand's address to the cadets at West Point. How does she sell the very subject of philosophy? So she tells the cadets there in that address, um, I'm not even speaking about objectivism, though it's implicit in what I have been saying. But what I'm trying to do is just sell you on the value of philosophy as such, 
And how does she try to sell them on it? The basic point is you've got an implicit philosophy, which means a subconsciously held bunch of ideas that give you a kind of philosophic perspective on the world. These ideas clash. Um, many are false, even ones that are true or not held in, in, in the proper context and often misapplied or overgeneralized and so on. And you've got to bring order, system, truth to this. But the first aspect of that is bringing them more into conscious awareness so that you can actually think about them, evaluate them. She says, like, if you do that for many of them, you'll find like they're hot potatoes that you'll drop immediately when you realize yeah, I'm holding this idea and this is what that idea really means. But the whole perspective is you've got a subconscious philosophy and the value of philosophy as a discipline and the reason to study it is to help you identify, yeah, these are my subconscious ideas and this is from a conscious, logical, rational perspective. This is what I actually think is true. These are the actual principles that I think make sense and then to try to bring the two into alignment and into harmony. But that, that the whole way she sells it is from this perspective. And there's a lot of discussion about the subconscious, including about emotions and their nature as automatic phenomena and how to think about these and so on. So the, if, you're, if you're thinking about how abstract ideas live in the mind, part of the way that she thinks about that is they live partly subconsciously and consciously, and yet that's what you have to understand. And that philosophy, not psychology, philosophy helps you understand that. And I think the more sophisticated perspective on this, of the idea that you have an implicit philosophy, is that um, you have an implicit metaphysics, which she calls a sense of life, an implicit epistemology, which she calls psychoepistemology, and an implicit perspective on values, which includes a perspective on what's right and wrong, what's moral, and particularly from the perspective as one's status as a valuer. How am I doing in regard to moral values? Am I succeeding? Am I failing? What is my perspective on that? But there's a kind of implicit moral perspective here. And that this is part of the makeup of people um, from a kind of philosophical slash psychological perspective, that the, the, you have to understand this about yourself and about other people, and that part of what philosophy is about, then in this more sophisticated perspective, is bringing some of this into more conscious focus attention, so, but that it's part of a person. So you get a complicated perspective here, that there's the conscious of what a person says and does, particularly if you're looking at another person, which is coming from their thinking, which is in part is shaped certainly by their conscious ideas and perspectives, but also by their subconscious, by their implicit philosophy. And that if you're to understand both your own functioning and the functioning of other people, this is the perspective that you have to have. This is the way that you have to be looking at it. It's not easy to do this, but this is what you're trying to do, and this is part of what it means to have a philosophical perspective. And in philosophy, who needs it? Where the theme of the whole book is the way that philosophy drives and shapes things. This is part of the perspective that you get in many of the articles. And indeed, if you read Ayn Rand's articles, or just say the articles in philosophy, who needs it, from this perspective, that you're really paying attention to this, you'll find that it's all over the place.
Um, here's a few examples, but it, they're almost random examples because you can pick up almost any article of Ayn Rand's and find this kind of perspective in them. But take one that connects back to the issue of just the way that she sells the whole subject of philosophy. So she wrote a companion article to philosophy who needs it called Philosophical Detection, and it's giving people advice about how to study philosophy, including the cadets at West Point, though it's not part of that address. And there she emphasizes both conscious and more subconscious, or the perspective of what people say and do and how to think about that and how to understand that philosophy, to study philosophy, you have to understand it's a system of ideas, it has a hierarchy, you have to really focus on the hierarchy, you have to focus on the fundamentals, they're what shape the rest of a system, they're what it depends on. If you're gonna assess a philosophy, assess it by its fundamentals. If the fundamentals are mistaken, then even if you think some derivative idea, there's something right about it, it's not right in the context of these mistaken fundamentals, and you have to think about that. And there's a whole perspective of how to analyze the structure of a philosophical system and so on. But there's also a perspective, if that's all you think is going on, and that's the only way you look at it, you won't understand philosophy. And it's literally, you won't understand philosophy. And so part of the advice that's given in the, in, in the article is, I'm hearing some, oh, okay. Um, part of the advice that's given in the article is, when you study philosophy, one of the things that you'll come to see, but you have to see this firsthand, but she's pointing out in effect, this is what you will find, and you won't be able to understand it unless you think of it from this perspective. She puts it, that evil philosophies are systems of rationalization. You have to see them as being driven by not the stated goals and not what's stated in like, this is what I'm trying to figure out. And so they're devised, their very structure and purpose is to serve as systems of rationalization, to serve some hidden motive, some motive that the person might not admit and might not even fully recognize, but it's there and you can see it from the logic or illogic of the system, what's held constant, what is not, and so, but that this is how you have to think of it and you won't be able to understand them. You won't be, be able to understand them as philosophical systems, absent that perspective. So she puts it, evil philosophies are systems of rationalization. <clears throat> and then she emphasizes that altruism is the greatest source or the richest source, I think is the word she uses, of rationalizations. And elsewhere she's made a point about modern philosophy that modern philosophers from Descartes on are willing to challenge basically everything, including like, do we even know there's a world out there and maybe there isn't, so, but they don't challenge altruism or almost all of them won't challenge altruism. And if you can have from just the kind of perspective in terms of arguments, like, well, why won't they challenge altruism? They're willing to challenge everything else. If you have this kind of perspective, that the systems are systems of rationalization, then the richest source of rationalization, that's the one thing that will be held constant. That's the one thing that won't be challenged. And it's not like they're incapable of challenging. It's if what's driving it is, I'm trying to create a system of rationalizations. And I think that's partly Kant and post-Kantian philosophy. 
that's her perspective on it, then it makes perfect sense that this is not questioned. But you can't understand that and won't be able to understand it unless you have this kind of perspective. Take a, another example. This also is in uh, one of the essays collected in philosophy, Who Needs It? The essay, um, Don't Let It Go. This is about forming a hypothesis about America's direction. So in the next few decades, what's possible to America kind of politically, culturally, how to think about that. And the article opens with a comparison that if you were thinking about the direction an individual takes, and if you're thinking about the direction um, a nation takes, these are the crucial things to focus on. And it's, you have to focus on present course of action, and for a person you can think of that, that's what they're doing. You have to focus on conscious convictions, and for a person of what they say and the ideas that they hold, and, so, and that they say that they hold. And you have to focus on sense of life. <clears throat> this is how she put the, and the article starts off like this, to form a hypothesis, this is what you have to look at. And then in the article, you get um, a detailed discussion of what it means to talk about a nation's sense of life, and then in particular, America's sense of life. Um, and she contrasts that to what she thinks is the dominant European sense of life. And you have to understand that the, this is part of what America is. This is part of its nature. Um, and if you don't understand this from a political, cultural perspective, your point of view of what's possible and forming a hypothesis of where it's headed is you just won't think properly about that. And in this case, it's like the sense of life is, in the case of the philosophies, it's the sense of life is bad or the whole um, kind of perspective that they're trying to rationalize. But here it's that America's sense of life is far better than its conscious convictions, which are basically none or worse than none. They're all anti-American. Um, and its present course of action. But you have to think, like, and you have to think about the interactions of those and the dynamic of that. And that if you're not thinking from that perspective, you're not in a position to actually have a, even a hypothesis of, about a judgment of this is the direction I think it's heading and it's for these reasons. <clears throat> um, and let me take one last example. So I've met many people, this is about differences between the Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. I've met many people who prefer the Fountainhead to Atlas Shrugged. And part of their perspective is in the Fountainhead, I find the characters more realistic, more like characters I encounter in life even like a Peter Keaton, yeah, I've met people like that. In Atlas, you've got extreme heroes like John Galt, Dagny, Francisco, and you've got abysmal villains like James Taggart um, and Floyd Ferris, and they're the focus of the novel in the way um, that's not true in The Fountainhead. And I, this is a difference, I think, between Atlas Shrugged and The Fountainhead. But I think you can't understand the nature of this difference unless you understand Ayn Rand's perspective on it. Um, I think the, the, that difference, that, um, the, the, that Atlas is populated and focused on in the way that um, it's not true of the Fountainhead, focuses on a Jim Taggart and then his buddy, the Floyd Ferris and so on, that of, of abysmal evil. You can't understand that perspective unless you see it connected to the themes and to see how she fully thinks about the theme. So The Fountainhead just is a more individual, intimate story. It's about one man and the opposition he faces from a collectivist, second-hander society and the kind of opposition he would face. 
Atlas Shrugged is about the rise and fall of civilization. It's about the role of the mind in human existence. It has a much wider scope and perspective. And from that, thinking of it from the perspective of its theme, what are the forces at work that drive history? That is how she, I think she thinks about it. And so in terms of constructing the story, it's conflict. And so it has to be from the perspective, what actually drives history? And her perspective on that is that it's consistency that drives history. And indeed, it's consistency from a special perspective. So the way she puts it in the lead essay of For the New Intellectual, which I view as a companion piece to Atlas Shrugged in the end, the way that she thinks about it and the way she thinks about the forces of history is, this is how it's put in that essay, the battle of human history is fought and determined by those who are predominantly consistent, those who for good or evil are committed to and motivated by their chosen psychoepistemology and its corollary view of existence. And note, it's their chosen psychoepistemology and the corollary view of existence, which is in part the kind of sense of life. That's the perspective that she thinks, and it's people who are consistent. And from that perspective, someone like a Peter Keating is ballast. He's insignificant from the perspective of history, but of the truly good and of the abysmally evil, like a Jim Taggart, of the haters of the good for being the good, and they're all put in that category. Floyd Ferris, Jim Taggart, and his ilk. They're put in that category. That's what she thinks drives history. And so if you're writing a story about the rise and fall of civilization, that has to be its focus. But again, I think you can't think about the, the way that she thinks about the theme and the way that it drives, like these are the kinds of characters and characterization that has to be in it. You have to see it from a perspective that involves this uh, of, how I put it, how abstract ideas inhabit a mind and that involves both a conscious and a subconscious element to it. So, and this is all over Ayn Rand's thinking um, and her approach to philosophy, including evaluating philosophical ideas, philosophical trends, and so on. Okay, I'm, let me make one last point about the, the, just something on this third issue of individual application. And this is, there's, of, of thinking about sense of life and psychoepistemology and um, self-esteem of these as components and they're kind of implicit philosophical perspective. The, it's easy to fall into um, a, a kind of perspective. I think in the end, these are complex phenomena. There's a lot to know about them and there's a lot to learn about them from Ayn Rand's writings. But it's not that you can either know everything about them. The standards are not like I'm omniscient about it, or um, that it's I know literally nothing about it. And you can just, in terms of your own functioning, figure out elements of a sense of life or psychoepistemology. And in terms of other people's functioning, you can get, yeah, there's elements here that I'm getting about um, uh, a person's psychoepistemology or self-esteem that is important in terms of judging. So, and that's not that you know everything about it, it doesn't make you a psychologist who can diagnose or help the person and so on, or knows the whole history of it. So, but it's also not like that you know nothing about it. And 
if you keep that in, like, if you keep it, like, what evidence do I have for what actual conclusion that I'm drawing? That is part of the way to think about this and the way to think of it in a reality-based way, not in a, um, in a, in a arbitrary way. So you can learn some things about this and some knowledge, if it really is knowledge, is knowledge. And you can use it and count on it so it's not to know everything. Um, and let me give one example here of something um, uh, in the objectivist movement that I've encountered. Now, it is, this is a bit of a negative example, but it, it's something that was in the movement. I think it's much less now. But it's from the perspective of thinking about self-esteem, uh, that is, is one of the, the easiest ones to think about, and the way that I think this plays out both in terms of judgment about oneself and judgment about other people and the way that that works. So this was early on in my uh, kind of career in objectivism and trajectory in objectivism and the objectivist movement. Um, and this is not about someone that many of you know, and it's not someone in the room or anything like that. But this was, so early on, I was working with a more senior objectivist intellectual for a few months, doing some assignments and projects. And uh, overall, I think the person was happy with what I did. And at the end of it, said to me, you're my Quentin Daniels. <clears throat> you're my Quentin Daniels. And my immediate reaction to that was, that's like an assault. Even though you can think of that, like that's meant as a compliment, it's really more like flattery. Um, you're my Quentin Daniels. And it, like, it was, don't host that on me. <clears throat> um, so Quentin Daniels, if you don't remember, in Atlas Shrugged, is the person Dagny finds to work on the remnants of the motor, to try to reconstruct the motor. Quentin Daniels is not just a good person. He's not like Eddie Willis. Quentin Daniels is a person of enormous intellect and accomplishment. Indeed, Galt refers to him when, she talk, when he talks to Dagny about Quentin Daniels, that, yeah, he was a plausible understudy. So this is a person of enormous mind. And if you tie your self-esteem, your kind of your self-image, your standard for assessment, that I've got to be Quentin Daniels, um, like that's a recipe for moral disaster. So it's either like that's your self-image and you realize like I'm never living up to this and I'm not Quentin Daniels. I don't have anywhere this level of ability and accomplishment. And, so, and you're always feeling depressed about that fact. So, or you start evading. And this is part of why these phenomena are important, and particularly in this regard, self-esteem. Evasion's motivated. That's part of what's important about understanding. It's motivated. And if you've got a self-image, like I'm Quentin Daniels, I've got to be Quentin Daniels, then like, reality's going to hit you over the head that you're not. You don't have that level of ability. And if your self-image is tied to that, you've got a real problem, you've got real temptation to evade. And so that's part from the self-assessment. Like, I don't want anything to do with that. That's poison. But from the other perspective, I'm your Quentin Daniels? So you think of yourself as John Galt? And that too, like, that's a recipe for moral disaster. Because it's again, like you've got two alternatives then. It's reality hits you over the head, you're non 
not John Galt. You're not a genius. And John Galt's not just a genius. Like he's a world-shaking and shaping genius. And if that's your view of yourself and part of your standards of self-assessment and self-image, then it's either you're going to feel like you're always worthless because you never live up to that, or it's a recipe that when it's reality points out you're not anywhere close to a genius, you start to rationalize and to try to preserve that self-image. And this is, in fact, I think what happened in regard to the person, because you've got the standard and it's wrong. And it's, again, do you have evidence for thinking like this is part of the way he's thinking of himself? Yes, like he's told me, he thinks I'm his Quentin Daniels, and the whole implication of that is you're, I'm John Galt and you're my understudy. And, so, and then there's a perspective that he's viewing himself like that, and that seems to be part of his self-image. And then you have to think about, like, how is that working and how is that functioning? And you have to think about, like, this, yeah, it creates all kinds of temptation to evade. And so is that part of what I think is playing out in regard to this person's action and behavior? But that's part of thinking of it both from the conscious perspective and what is, right, like the person might not have fully explained, yeah, I do think of myself as John Galt. And if you said that to explain, no, I don't think of myself. But on the other hand, this kind of remark is not just an offhand remark. It's part of the way the person's thinking and functioning. It's not fully conscious, not fully explicit, but that's part of what one has to think about in regard to moral judgment um, and just sort of navigating people, and it's broader than moral judgment, just in terms of understanding. As I put it for Ayn Rand, it's understanding events, people, trends, and so on. This is part of the perspective that one has to have. And so then to go back to the, the, the two basic points in the article, there is something that is a sin of psychologizing, but it's a form of mysticism. And it should not, it, the consequence of understanding that should be yeah, it's not illegitimate to think about some psychological issues and psychological functioning from a philosophical perspective. Indeed, this is part of what philosophy is about. It's not about arbitrarily speculating, but it is about thinking about the, what the actual complexity that makes up a human being and a human mind and how it functions, both one's own functioning and then the functioning of other people. Okay, so let me end here. Uh, sorry, I've gone over a little bit, but we do have 15 minutes left for questions. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, Jack. Hi. Hi. I want to uh, give you my argument against Islamophobia. A phobia is an irrational fear. But my understanding, although I have not read the Quran, but I have uh, talked to people or read about people who have talked to them and read it, uh, that it encourages all of its adherents to kill non-believers. Plus that, I see on the TV news every so often, hundreds if not thousands of people, usually in Iran, walking down the streets with signs saying, death to America. So while I don't think that Islamophobia is true, it's irrational, I think we have a rational fear of, or we should have a rational fear of the religion and a lot of the people who adhere to the religion, although 
I've played soccer with a guy from Iran. He's a hell of a nice guy. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, yeah. So that, yes, I, I think that's basically right. That's part of the point that I was trying to make, that it is just as you can fear communism, or at least you brand it as something evil, something to be avoided, the same is true for Islam as it exists in the world today through the Middle East. But that is not irrational, and part of the whole that it's psychologizing is to put it in the category of the irrational by making it a psychological phenomenon that the person doesn't control, and it's some non-rational element that's actually driving it. That's part of what the smear is. Thank you. Great presentation, thank okay. you very much. Um, what advice would you have for a person who's in a profession, let's say a, uh, in a public defendant, who has to get into the mind of the person they're defending and then shape and mold that person to have them come across a different way to a jury? I have to consult the professional. Um, yeah, I mean, there are, I mean, people in, in the law, and I'm sure, as you know, in, in criminal justice and so on, there's people who coach people about how to be on the witness stand and how to testify and so on. And hopefully the coaching is not lie on the stand and so on, but it's how to actually present yourself and so on. Yeah, so there's things to know about that. I don't have any special perspective on how to do that, other than do it in a moral way, not in an immoral way. Thank you. Uh, when you named the examples of uh, psychologizing, uh, it occurred to me, isn't that what uh, often happens to Alex Epstein when you know, he's making his case and then the question comes, are you paid by the oil industry, you know, by the fossil fuel people? And I never realized that this, and that's my you know, part of the question, is, is that the another example of, of, of psychologizing, you know, they, they're, they're, they're asking him this question. I have always thought, you know, this is this, is, this attack on his, on his honesty, right? This is how I always classified it. Why is, why, is, why is he not defending himself in this way, polite way, let's say, but you're attacking my honesty? Why do you think, you know, uh, I'm saying something else that I'm that I'm that I'm that I'm thinking, and yeah. now uh, I have actually discovered, you know, in your lecture. Oh, this isn't just another example of psychologizing, right? Why is not Alex answering this way? You know, you're, you know, perhaps not you're psychologizing, but you're attacking my honesty. Yeah. You know, so, uh, do you realize yeah. that? And Alex is always saying, okay, but you know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, paid by the oil industry. Shouldn't he be more forceful in this reaction? That's a tactical issue about how to respond. Um, there's a similarity, but I would put for it to be <clears throat> actual psychologized. So the similarity is this, this is the real reason that's driving you. And so, but paid by the oil industry is not an appeal to the subconscious. But if you add to that, so you're biased, and you might not even know that you're biased, but what's really driving you is a desire for more money, and, so, and that's why you're giving the arguments that you give, and so on, and the evidence and, and actual arguments, it, this is all a kind of rationalizing. You don't even realize it's rationalizing, but you've been bought by the oil industry, and this happens to everybody who's bought by the oil industry. When it gets to that, then I think it is psychology. You don't even, it's because part of it is, you don't know what's driving you. Like Alex doesn't know what's driving him. We know what's driving you because we know like this is implants something in your psychology and you've got a psychological bias now and you can't avoid it. And, so, and there, that happens a lot. And with the, the part of the, this whole discussion of 
implicit bias and so on, it easily lends itself to psychologizing because it's, yeah, there's some element of your subconscious, you don't know about it, but I've somehow ferreted it out and that's what's really driving you and I can dismiss your arguments because of it. So when you color it a little bit more like that, I think, yes, it becomes. That is another example of psychologizing. We have an online question. Oh, yeah. In judging others, how do we take into account things like psychological trauma that one may not oneself understand or have experienced? Um, so I've touched on the, what I regard sort of as the basics, and particularly from the perspective that I was looking at it, the basics in the article, the psychology of psychologizing. But for this question and for the questioner, I recommend reading or rereading the whole article because there's some perspective on this and including the perspective both from when you're dealing with someone who seems to have psychological problems, but also from the perspective of the person who has psychological problems. And uh, th this isn't the way that it's put in the article, but I would put it, you could, to the extent that you have real and evidence-based awareness of thinking, there's some kind of psychological problem going on, um, it, which could include just for, for various reasons, an inability to concentrate well, to take a, a very minor kind of thing, but real, and I've met people with this. And so. You can think of that as it's a mitigating factor. It's something you take into account, but it doesn't can, you can't excuse or condemn. This is part of what the point I think that she's making in that the, psych, the subconscious as such is not about what moral judgment is about. It's about the conscious control being exerted. But part in terms of thinking about that is thinking, yeah, like this person for various reasons has real trouble concentrating. So you have to take that in account in terms of the conscious control that they can exert and how that will actually manifest itself and not. Um, so it's, it's, it can be relevant when you actually know about it and have real evidence for it, not arbitrary speculation about psychological problems. But it doesn't, it doesn't change the fact that the essence of moral judgment is thinking about the conscious control being exerted, and that is what the focus is on. That involves aspects of the subconscious, and so can involve aspects of subconscious um, problems and sort of malfunctioning, but it's not the essence of what you're focused on. I can think of several examples of um, times when I've been in discussion when um, someone was psychologizing. And so do you have any advice for how to sort of point that out? Um, because maybe they don't realize that they're committing a logical fallacy and maybe they don't even want to, but um, like what would be the best way of sort of raising awareness of this new concept of psychologizing to them? Well, that's, there's two different things. So I, I think the first thing, and part of why I stress this, the first thing to say, and if, if you think the person's just going wrong but is basically well-motivated, um, you would do it in one way. And if you think it's, there's a conscious indulgence in the arbitrary, I'd do it in a different way. But I think the first thing to call out is that this is arbitrary. You don't have any evidence for this. This is arbitrary speculation. And for a good person, if you point that out, it's, oh, really? I don't have any evidence for this? That's a problem. Um, and th to get it, that, like, it's a, it's, 
psychologizing is to categorize it and conceptualize it. In it's what you're doing is arbitrary speculating about the function of the subconscious and how that drives a person, and supposedly he's not in control. This is the determinist element that's driving him, and that's part of the mysticism. That's the whole phenomenon. But the inroad into it is that it's arbitrarily speculating. And then what you're arbitrarily, the, what you're in particularly arbitrarily speculating about is subconscious, which you don't have any evidence for, and you don't know what you're doing, and you don't, don't think, um, uh, so part of the atmosphere of the article as well, and I think it's coming in part from the 70s, is you're not a psychologist. Um, psychology's in its infancy. A lot of these theories are wrong. Don't just start using these theories in a, and the theories themselves, I think some of them she thinks are arbitrary in themselves. And so, so, it, the, so there's a whole phenomenon here, but the, the lead into it is that it's arbitrary. And that any good person, that, it, that sends off warning bells that really I'm engaged in that. Thank you. Sure. You mentioned when judging a mistake someone makes that you need to determine if it was a breach of moral knowledge or just an error of moral knowledge. And I was wondering if you could say something about judging a failure to update moral knowledge when one receives evidence that they need to. So that is a phenomenon, but again, one has to think about it. it so failing to update, what are the reasons for thinking? Yeah, this person could update. Update in which way? You can't hold a standard so the, the, there's this kind of perspective in objectivism that I often talk to students about that like, you can't hold both of these. You can't hold moral knowledge and objectivism's moral principles. If you mean, up to, if we're talking really about knowledge, that this is all obvious and that Ayn Rand's a genius. It, like, you can't, the, the two don't go together. So either it's not all obvious or Ayn Rand's not a genius in formulating her new moral code because it was all obvious and anybody who sat down for a couple of days could have done this and so on. It took her two years to write Galt's speech. Um, so, it, so the real, it, it's not obvious. So then in terms of thinking about updating moral knowledge, you have to think about what that updating would look like, what is actually possible to the person, what's reasonable to expect. And if what you're expecting is, oh, well, they'd be Ayn Rand and they'd be figure out this, this, and that, and then inform these new principles. No, there's no reason. And this is again part of why you have to think about the actual person and both their, like what knowledge, other things would they draw on if it's, they're gonna learn that, no, like this can't be what the principle of justice means. So what else are they drawing on? What are their thinking abilities? And so you have to think about all that to have a perspective on that person. This is my expectation. And so there's a way in which I think he's just refusing to update because if he updated, he would realize yeah, what I was doing, though it was just an error, is inconsistent with morality, and I can't keep doing that, and so on. And if it's a difficult kind of situation, he can have, you can think he has reasons for not wanting to update. And so on. But that all is, you have to think of it in a very specific individual way. And that's part of what I was trying to emphasize, and that's part of why you have to be thinking about the actual person and the actual contents of his mind to have a perspective on that. And you could think for the same kind of situation for one person, no, like he's trying to update his moral knowledge, he's not updating it well. And you could think for another person, no, he's not actually trying to update because he doesn't want to know. No. And those are different, morally different situations. Thank you. Sure. I think that there's a prominent voice with Jordan Peterson in our culture 
Um, I think he's a psychologist. And I don't know a lot about him, but I know many people who do follow him a bit. And I'm just curious, what does he bring to this, to our philosophy of objectivism? Or is he not really as much in alignment, but more uh, uh, just devi deviates from it? Um, yes, he's not in his conscious philosophy and conscious ideas. He's not objectivist. And I don't think he's close to objectivism. On some particular things, you can think there's, uh, and, and, and of, of what, part of what launched him into the public eye and celebrity status was challenging some laws in Canada that needed challenging um, around that you have to use certain words and so on. And there's some things on free speech that he's pretty good on. Um, but the overall philosophy, no, it, it is. And in the end, there's a religious, mystical element uh, to it. And I think Yaron in his talk brought up Jordan Peterson and part of his kind of admiration for Putin. And you can read one Ayn Rand novel and realize that like, objectivism has nothing to do with um, admiring dictators. Like it, you can't be very close to objectivism if that's your perspective. So, I mean, there, there's a lot more to say on it, but it, it, just if you think of it from that perspective, it's no. But then if you see some of his religious, and even in the, psycho, I think in the psychological realm, there's a lot of mystical kind of elements in the thinking as well. It's not all that, but there's some of that. So no, I would not, they're not very similar even. Okay, I think we're out of time, so thank you. Thank you for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Remember to subscribe wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.